Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. We have with us today on the podcast, Rashad Tabakawala. He is uh, coming to us from India. He's in India right now, so uh, really appreciate him calling in. The book that he has written most recently is Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. He is the Chief Growth Officer at Publicis Group. Uh, an advertising communication firms with 80,000 employees worldwide. He's been hailed by Time Magazine as one of the top five marketing innovators. He's been recognized by Business Week as one of the top business leaders. Uh, and he has uh, experience with companies like Facebook and Google and Apple and Pixar and Starbucks. He talks about them in the book, Netflix, Domino's. So I, you know, as, as I always like to do on this podcast, I'll be speaking to him both as a thought leader uh, as well as an executive and someone who, you know, within his own firm works to uh, put his ideas into practice so that it's not just theory, but it's, you know, the challenges of being a leader and putting important ideas into practice. Rashad, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm uh, honored to be here. So Rashad, I want to start, you, you talk about restoring the soul of business, and I want to start with uh, the idea of soul uh, in business or the soul of a business. And, and I, one of the things that caught my eye about this book is that when, uh, over the summer I was on vacation with my wife in an island uh, called Madeira Island off the coast of Morocco and Portugal. And we were staying at a vineyard and it was this sort of inn that was also a vineyard. It was run by family members. The family were out there. All of the family members were picking grapes. It was the harvest season. And I was in a conversation with the woman who was part of the family who um, ran the inn and, and operated the vineyard. And the conversation we had was she didn't want to change the soul of this inn. Like there's, like, it's, like there's a million hotels out there that you can stay at and really luxury hotels and nice hotels and hotels that have strong brands and franchises and, you know, you know what to expect, but they lack a soul. And there was something about this inn and this family and the way they operated this that felt soulful to Eleanor and I and Eleanor and me. And we, but we were in later conversations about saying, what does it mean for a business to have a soul? What does it mean for a house to have a soul? What does it mean, you know, and, and there's a lot of criticism of business as a structure that gets given too much personality, meaning a business in effect is a corporate structure that has the rights of a person in many ways. But, you know, should it have the rights of the person? Because there's people working in it, but the business itself is not a person. And so I'm really interested in, in you know, eventually we're going to get to some very specific keys that you talk about around, around bringing and being soulful as a business and bringing soul into the business. But I want to start with, like, what do you mean by soul? What does it mean for a business to have a soul? Perfect. So I look at the soul of a business uh, combining two things, a spreadsheet and a story. So most businesses today 
have become intensely spreadsheet and data driven. And I believe businesses need to have spreadsheet and data because those are things like profits and losses and employees and deliverables and the underlying economics. And I believe that businesses that do not have underlying economics are unlikely to succeed in the medium or long term. So let me just pause right. you there. I agree 100% with you about that, right? A business right. Can't, right. can't succeed without having the fundamentals. But you're saying that's part of the soul of the business? It's the spreadsheet? That, that, that is part of the book, yes. So part of the soul of a business is the spreadsheet. And however, what people have decided is to only focus on the spreadsheet. And my belief is the soul of a business is the spreadsheet plus the story. So the story of a business is the following, very much like the inn you went into. First of all, it's the talent of the people who work in the business. The second is the culture, the heritage, and the pedigree of where the business came from. Third is the emotional feeling that it leaves its customers and consumers or people with. And so successful businesses combine the story and the soul. So let's say something as simple as airlines. You look at two businesses, United Airlines and Southwest, and you basically say they're in the same category. 80 to 90% of what they do is mandated by government exactly how they should do it. They fly exactly the same aircraft. One business does really much better than the other business, both on the economics of the business, but as well as where you want to fly if you had a choice. And to a great extent, it's combining the story and the spreadsheet is the soul of a business. And we have either become intensely spreadsheet-driven businesses in today's data-driven world, or we basically forget the spreadsheet, and then we really don't have a soul of a business. We have a commune, okay? So to a great extent, the in you went to had an underlying economics that I have no doubt that while their margins may have been either lower or could have even been higher, there were margins to be had. So they were running a business. So that's what I mean by soul. It's spreadsheet plus story, not just the story. So why is the spreadsheet an important part of the soul? Like if I think of the uh, human being, I think we've got like the soul and we also have like physical functions and we have structure and we, there's like other parts of us. We're not all soul. We're, we're physical beings with soul, unless you, you feel, and you may be right, I have no idea, that we're all soul, like the physical nature of who we are is soul. And that might, that might yes. be what you think also. Yes. Yeah, so what I basically believe is the, the soul is a combination of things. It's not one thing. So for the human being, I believe the soul is this very interesting combination of physical, mental, and emotional. And when they're in sync, that is what a human being to a great extent is. And if you take away one of those three, you have something much less interesting. So you could be mentally fantastic and emotionally wonderful, but you don't look after yourself, so you're gonna die, right? And so in many ways, the physical nature of a human being could be the equivalent of a spreadsheet. And the mental and emotional part of the human being is the story. Interesting. So and it's not, body, you're not saying that no. the soul lives in the body. You're saying the soul is the body and that the soul 
is the umbrella that holds everything about existence that a person is, and you think the same thing about an organization. Yes, and, 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 and successful businesses have been like that, but more recently they have tilted, so they have sort of floated away from their body, and they think that's what success is. Uh, so what's the difference? You talk about story, and, and, and you have a section of the book, Fusing Story and Spreadsheet. So it's like bringing these elements of the soul together. What's the difference between story or brand? Like, or brand and soul? Like, is brand soul? Because people can construct brands that, you know, in some ways betray who they are as a company, but they're doing it for marketing purposes. And is how, how, is, how is brand either, either soul or not soul? So the way I look at it is the brand is a component of the soul, but it's not the soul. Or it's an expression of the soul, but not the soul. So maybe that's better. It's an expression of the soul, but not the soul. So think about it as if the soul is the story, the emotion, the culture, and the people of an organization, the brand is basically a story or an experience that they deliver to an individual, which therefore basically is both a trust mark, which is, hey, when I interact with this particular company, I get this kind of experience, right? But that experience has been delivered by the company. So for instance, my sense is that Apple, the company, is not the same as Apple iPhone. iPhone is an expression of the soul, it's one. So the brand is an expression of the soul, but it's just a component. And because storytelling and brands, I believe are part of storytelling and experience are one component. But the other parts of it, the culture, it has some components, but not all of it. The talent, the talent obviously works on the products, but the talent is not the product. Right. So, you don't you, you 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 do not confuse Southwest the airline with everything Southwest, including Herb Keller and everything else. Right. You say in the book, and this is a quote: "A central premise is that successful individuals and confirms and firms can never forget the importance of people, their emotions, the culture of the organization, and what cannot be measured." Um, my, my experience is, everybody says that, not everybody does that. And, right. and my question to you, since you're in this business, is if you can't measure it, how do you make a case for it in a way that convinces people that they should devote time and energy to it? So I think a couple of things. The first is many of them can be measured, but they are measured differently. And once you measure them, you will find that companies that do better on some of these quote-unquote soulful elements end up doing better on shareholder return, market share gains, and everything else. So let's look at some of the quote-unquote soft measures, right? A soft measure is employee satisfaction. It now has been proven, and these are investors who basically say that employee satisfaction is a leading indicator of market share performance and brand and stock performance. And, and that is measurable. I, I would argue that that's become a hard measure, meaning, you know, people do like, I don't know a single large company that doesn't do some form of employee satisfaction survey. Right. 
So what about the and, things and, and, that you can't measure? So here's the things that they that they can't measure. And what I mean by can't measure, it just means how all of those interact. So for instance, look at the following. You, you can measure employee satisfaction. You can measure now increasingly corporate reputation, right? You can measure uh, another component, which is sort of what do people think of the culture of the company? So that's some, some combination of corporate right. reputation and people. But those have always tended to be thought of as soft measures. Yes, they're measurable, right? but they're not the same as profit, costs, efficiency, which are very much driven and go directly, looks like, into the bottom line. Right. And what and you're what arguing saying, is, and what I think you could argue, is that those might be leading indicators, whereas profit and revenue and, and, and uh, you know, those are lagging indicators, right? They tell lag, you you're doing something lag, right. Th yeah. yeah, those are lagging indicators. But what we tend to basically do is we try to then not recognize the connection. So, for instance, you have a profit margin problem. You therefore decide one way to solve the problem is cut your costs. You cut your costs in such a way that it increases your profit margin on one end, but on the other end, you've done it in such a way that it impacts your customer satisfaction, your employee satisfaction, and the culture of your company. Right, which has been you know this long conversation about short-term versus long-term. Like short-term, you can impact your profitability in a way that ultimately long-term uh, hurts it. But what is happening today is A, because of the real pressures of the marketplace, which is, you know, outside of a few companies, there seems to be an emphasis to focus on the short term. Mm -hmm. That's what people, management thinks, right. that they should focus on the short term. There is an emphasis on speed and there is an emphasis on data because data becomes a common language, right? So data is the common language that you and I can understand. When we put up charts in France or in almost every country that uses, let's say, the Roman numerals, mm -hmm. everyone can understand those. Right. Right. And, and those don't need elegant forms of trans translation to translate into Mandarin or anything else. A number is a number is a number. Right. Right. My basic belief is at the very same stage, see what happens when someone like a Disney goes to the market, cuts its margin in order to launch Disney Plus. Its stock goes up. Right. Okay. So in the old world, it was basically, so my thing is it's actually the market is much sharper and smarter it's than smarter. CEOs claim it is. Right? right. Markets know, but markets know when you are faking it, where you're basically saying, I can't make the number and I'm pretending I'm doing a long-term investment. Mm -hmm. Are you doing a real long-term investment or not? And so what is basically beginning to happen, whether it's Amazon on one end, Adobe on the other end, no successful company that I know of doesn't at times have to take massive cuts to near-term revenue and near-term metrics. But as long as they have a plot and a plan and then they can explain it, the markets actually support them. Right. And so a, a big part of it is markets are not as stupid sometimes as CEOs think they right. are. You, you talk about um, in how to lead with soul. You have these five elements, right? Honesty, empathy, humility, inspiration and vulnerability. Yes. Um, what I'm, so, so you're sort of defining soul in a way or you're defining, 
you know, like a soulful business is one in which the leaders are honest, empathic, modest, inspired, and, and vulnerable. Um, yes. Okay. So my question to you is how? Like help us, let's say there's a lot of leaders listening to this podcast, help, help us all um, bring more honesty, empathy, humility, inspiration, and vulnerability into our lives and into our leadership. What suggestions do you have for us to restore soul into our businesses or bring more soul to our lives? So leading with soul is the chapter that sort of wraps up, is one of the wrapping up chapters of the book. And I just noticed this morning that the FT person of the year, so the Financial Times person of the year, was Satya Nadella. And Satya Nadella, who's the chairman or CEO of Microsoft, has created almost, uh, he inherited a company with $185 billion of market cap. And six years later, it's one trillion one of market cap. So with the exception of um, Tim Cook, he has created more value than anybody else. And what are some of the things that he's known for? Number one, he's known for empathy, right? He drives that. Uh, and so there's an entire chapter in my book called Have More Meetings. And in that, I talk about how to have meetings with empathy. A second thing that he's known for is a growth mindset. Sorry, give us give us a quick uh, a snippet on how to have meetings with empathy. Give us one thing we can do that would help us have meetings with more empathy. To have meetings with more empathy, you need to do three things. The first is you need to basically listen to the other person and put yourself in their shoes, number one. Number two is you need to tell them about how you were in a situation like them. So then there's sort of a resonance. But third and most importantly is you want to frame everything through their eyes or through their mindset. And, and that is a big part of it, which is I am listening to you, I hear you, and I can see you. You know, that's, that's a big part of empathy. A second part of it is of, of this soul is people who, have, who upgrade their mental operating systems. Mm -hmm. So upgrading their mental operating systems a subcomponent of that is a big part of what I mentioned, and which is a big driver again in Satya Nadella's turnaround, which is he calls it the growth mindset, right? He says you need to have a learning mindset versus a know-it-all mindset. And so how do you upgrade your mental operating system? I keep reminding people that today most of us are using an Apple phone, which has its 13th version of the operating system. And most humans haven't even got to the second version of our operating systems. Um, so how do we upgrade? So what is you need to basically, to have soul, you need to continuously improve. To have soul, you need to have be empathetic. So let's let's is, pause for a second on that because I think it's a great analogy, right? So we're on you know we're on iOS 13, right? So it's our 13th operating system. What right. do we do as human beings? To upgrade, like, we, how, how do we even begin to think about upgrading our operating system? What's so the process? There are three. There are three ways to upgrade the operating system. The first is, whenever people, when real up operating systems are upgraded, people work on it every day for a year. If you think about it, right? So my proposal is that everyone should spend and invest an hour every day learning new things or learning, purely learning. Mm 
So you need to invest in learning. So we didn't go from iOS 12 to iOS 13 with no work. There was probably two, three years of engineering work, right? They probably are working on 13, 14, 15. So that was number one. And do you have thoughts about what people should be learning or learn anything you want to learn as long as you're learning? So I, I believe you can learn anything you want, but the, the suggestion I have is whenever you hear of something at work that you do not understand, write it down and go investigate it. Second is if you see something that you feel interesting about or passionate, go participate in that. So one is basically simply don't run away from things you don't know, spend time growing your skill set. Mm -hmm. A second one is to try to do one new thing a day, which is very different than learning. You pay attention to things which are different. So to a great extent, when you travel, when you fall out of your itineraries, when you really start traveling, because you're very aware of what's going on. So whenever you go to a new place, look at things differently, you actually are alive and you're learning. So I try to do one new thing. It may go to a new restaurant, walk home in a different way, do one new thing, meet one new person. That's very important. Investing one hour of your time learning and trying to do one new thing, both of those are doable. They don't cost a whole bunch of money. They're both doable. The third one is you don't do this every day. You do this once in a while. It is highly difficult but it is more important in today's polarized world than ever before, which is build a case for the exact opposite of what you believe. So if you believe something, build a really strong case as to why you are wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can't do that, then do you really know why you're right? Uh, those are great. Those are sort of great thoughts. Um, you, you talk about problem bosses. Right, the narcissistic yes. god, the micromanaging fiddler, the Oscar aspirant, the double agent assassin. So, first of all, what I'll say is nobody thinks they're those things, right? We all know people that we think are those things, but none of the people who are those things think that they're those things. And what I also want to say is, like, part of our souls are we probably have aspects of that in ourselves, right? So, there's a way in which yep. I am the narcissistic god and the micromanaging fiddler and the Oscar aspirant and the double agent. So, there's, so I'm, I'm always a little suspect of externalizing the internal things that, you know, we might struggle with with ourselves, looking at someone else and saying, you know, you're, you're so narcissistic and that's evil and I'm going to kill you off conceptually or through gossip. Um, the reason people are these things are deep seated, right? Someone who's the you know who comes shows up as a narcissist, and we all know people who are leaders and organizations who are narcissists. In fact, I think there's more you know of all of these things. I think there's more narcissists as leaders because that's something narcissists want to do is they want to become leaders. And of course, they're not all narcissists. They just have certain tendencies. Um, and and like I said, we have those same tendencies, right? We we wouldn't be. Um, human if we didn't have some element of ourselves that connects with all this. My, my real question underneath this is, what do you do about it? Like, if, if you have so, a boss that you think is narcissistic, what do you do? Right. So the first is, I agree with your opening statement, which is that externalizing and creating these four types of people and saying you're one of these people isn't exactly the right way to go. Mm -hmm. Which is why if you notice the way I set it up is hey, here's the good stuff, you know, vulnerability, etc. those are the good things, and these are the bad. And then I make a statement which says everybody, every one of us 
has a good boss in us and a bad boss in us. Mm-hmm. And depending on the situation, either how much sleep we've had, the pressure on us that particular day, and our mood, we can suddenly dial up the bad boss and dial down the good boss, mm-hmm. okay, without us knowing it. So A, we have to be aware that when we describe the bad boss, he or she is us. Right. We have that in us, right. right? But we also have the good boss. But if we can basically dial up the good boss 70, 80% of the time and dial down the bad boss 20%, that makes us good. Now, that's the opening statement. Based on that, it becomes very easy to engage with a narcissist because, in effect, some percent of the time, we are narcissists too, mm-hmm. right? And the way we do it is we call ourselves out when we are narcissistic to the narcissistic boss, hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so what happens is if you criticize somebody, they are likely to be defensive. If you, however, make an example of yourself, right, they're much more likely to listen. I always, when I try to get a client to change something in what they're doing in business, I never talk about their business or their category. I talk about another business in another category. And they begin to see the common commonalities. And mm-hmm. they say, wait a second, that could happen to me. I said, possibly. Shall we think about what we do if that happens? Versus you suck, right? Right. But but the other thing I try to remind people is some bosses are beyond redemption, maybe 10, 15, 20%. Okay. A small percent, but but they are. 20% is a pretty high percentage. <laughs> yeah. T- but right? you know, say 10, 15%. But, but yeah. still, the whole idea is if you've got five bad bosses and you can redeem four, you still only have one bad, right? <laughs> because that's so, so, but it's still. Now, that particular stage, my recommendation is you try to get a new assignment. Okay. Right. And if you can't get a new assignment, you leave the company. Mm-hmm. Because the one thing I've learned is corrosive bosses corrode completely, right? They corrode everything around them and they corrode everybody around them and you can't save it. Mm-hmm. You can't save the person. So I made a statement recently and because of the the place we are in the country, some of my good friends basically said, hey, you're talking about politics, you shouldn't talk about politics, but we understand what you're talking about. So I basically described a certain United States president as a turd, right? And that anybody that was working close to him was like toilet paper. They got soiled. Okay? Right. That regardless of who you were, your reputation would go down in flames because you would go in saying you can solve for this, but eventually that that stuff soiled you. Right. So there's, in some ways, there's so a certain narcissism. Up, but you were like a toilet paper. In your cleanup, you got... And in a way, there's a certain yeah. narcissism so, so, in trying to save, in trying to be the yes. person who can resolve a who situation. Right. Yes. And, and so what basically happens is my belief is when you have people like that, the only thing that can go wrong is yourself. There's nothing you can do to save the situation. And so in that area, I suggest to people that they should leave because if they stay next to a corrosive boss, the boss ain't gonna change, they're just gonna get more corroded. Right.
Rashad, we, we've run out of time. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. I think this is a sort of deep um, uh, topic requiring a lot of thought, uh, you know, in terms of ourselves as individuals and where where our soul is and then the businesses that we're working for and where the soul of the business is. So I really appreciate you coming to the show and, and speaking about it. We've been talking with Rashad Tabakawala, Restoring the Soul of Business, Staying Human in the Age of Data. Rashad, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.